everyone, and welcome to the Rodeo Kids podcast. I'm your host, Camry Rorda, and today we have Rodeo Kids team leader, Laith West, interviewing a little different kind of guest for the Rodeo Kids podcast. We have a gentleman who is definitely involved in things on a different level. He is a foreign diplomat for the United States who travels the world and deals with things that worth most of us at least, are thankful that we don't have to deal with on a daily basis. But during this podcast, you'll gain a new appreciation for what some of the people in our government do and the roles that they play. And especially just coming off of Memorial Day weekend, I think it's really important to have these conversations to open our mind and get a little bit bigger perspective on what the world is like outside of American soil. So today we have guest Matthew West joining us on the Rodeo Kids podcast from Morocco, Africa. He is full of information and some of this will be a little mind-blowing and other times it'll make you think that he kind of lives a movie star life. So without further ado, we would like to welcome Rodeo Kids team leader Laith West interviewing his uncle and foreign diplomat joining us from Africa, Matthew West. Welcome to the RodeoKids.com podcast, where we empower youth to be their best selves through the values and traditions of the rodeo and Western lifestyle. Hello. Welcome to Rodeo Kids podcast. Tell us your name. Why don't you? Sure. My name is Matthew West. Nice. Tell us a little bit about um, where you are at the moment and what do you do for a living? So I am currently in Rabat, Morocco, which is in Northern Africa, and I am a U.S. diplomat, otherwise known as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer, and I work here at the U.S. Embassy in Morocco. What does a diplomat do? That is a good question that I have been trying to figure out myself for the last (laughs) 16 years. Um, (laughs) So... My job in particular, we do a lot of different things, but my job in particular, I work on economic issues. So what's a few examples I can give? Uh, Recently, we worked with a U.S. company and another U.S. government agency to provide about a million dollars worth of funding to get the U.S. company to work here in Morocco on green energy. It's like building green energy, solar energy here in Morocco. That's one thing. Um, We also work on um, taking care of American citizens when they're traveling abroad. So if an American citizen here in Morocco has a problem, they can call us at the embassy and we can try to help them out. We work on, as you can imagine, political stuff, security stuff, um, defense, helping Morocco defend itself against whomever might cause any problems and vice versa. Morocco helping the United States um, in the defense world. We do a lot of different things. Very hard to describe <laughs> what, a, yeah. what a day looks like, but those are some examples. Yeah. So what made you want to choose that career path? That's a great question. I'm not sure if I chose it or it chose me. Um, so, Laith, as you know, I started out wanting to be a medical doctor 
and applied for medical school, got into medical school, and then decided I needed to take some time to think about what I wanted to do. So I came home, worked for my dad for a while on the farm, and then went back to studying science and finished a science degree, PhD, and then did a fellowship with the government after that. Instead of staying in at a university, I did a fellowship with the government and working internationally, doing various stuff for the Department of Agriculture. And then ended up in the Foreign Service after that. It's been kind of up and down. Things have changed a lot, but um, it's been good. There's never no, no one straight point to a career, I think. We we know that you, you know, you travel a lot and you've been in a different a lot of different places. Um, name all those places that you have been and lived. How about we'll start with the places I've lived because the, the the other list is kind of kind of long and I probably won't remember all of them. But I have <laughs> I have lived in for the U.S. government. I have lived in Iraq, in Baghdad, Iraq. I've lived in Tel Aviv, Israel. I've lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and then I was in Washington D.C. for a while working, and now here in Rabat, Morocco. Those are the my overseas tours. I've visited a lot of countries, most of European countries, a lot of Central American, North American, Asian countries, kind of been all over the place, either for work or for fun. How long do you normally stay in those places? Is it three years mostly? Or? That's a great question. It depends. Um, the tour here in Morocco is three years. Some tours, depending on how, what we call a hardship, if the, if the country that's that we're living in is um, very different from the United States. It's become somewhat difficult to live in. The, the tours are shorter. So sometimes one year, sometimes two years. It just depends. I see. Where has your favorite favorite place been to live so far? Ooh, that's tough. Um, my favorite place to live? It'd probably be Morocco. Morocco's been really great. Yeah. I got to go to Morocco when I was in high school just for like a day we were in Spain and stuff and got to take the ferry yeah. over it was so cool we got to go through the markets and it was almost like I felt like I was being transported back in time because there were donkeys pulling wooden wagons with milk cartons in them and like it was just such a interesting experience and just getting from the ferry into town I don't know what town it was I just know it was Morocco I'm sure you're more familiar with that um but just like all of the people walking barefoot and the towns of tents and just just that way of life and everybody seemed happy and it's just when you come from America and that's like oh my gosh they're homeless they must be poor like their life must just be miserable and I don't think that's necessarily true everywhere that's absolutely true yeah I mean every every place in the world is is different right and every culture is different and and what the, what's available what's not available and and the you know, the way of life is very different that's one of the big lessons I've learned in the foreign service is like we in the United States think that kind of sometimes growing up you think that everybody's like us or every country is similar and it's and it's very different but Morocco's it's been great the the town that you probably went into is Tangier or Tangier is what they call it okay. um, and you can actually see Spain right that you can see Spain from yeah. From Tangier. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I think that's, and I'm sure Lathal 
I'm, we'll get back to your questions here in just a second, Leif, but um, I just went to Amsterdam too. My sister has been over there for four years and she's moving back. So I, I had to go. Whether my, my window of moment was closing and she lives like downtown Amsterdam. And that way of life is so different too. Like everybody's on a bike. Like there are so many bikes and tiny little cars and just the, the culture is it's so much slower paced and people stacked on top of each other but um in traveling and I'm sure you can share a little bit about this but I just think it's such an important thing like even when these kids are going from point a to point b with rodeos even the culture from one state to the next can be different and making sure that we take the time to learn a little bit about the culture because I think as we become more cultured, we become more well-rounded and not so narrow-minded and more doors can open and we can understand a much bigger picture for to apply to rodeo or to the government or to whatever career path you choose to go down. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. I I completely agree. Not only traveling within the United States, and you're absolutely right, every state, every town, every county, you know, you're going to see differences in culture and differences in the way thing, people do things. But I highly recommend for anybody, whether it's if you're in high school or college or whatever, to take the opportunity to travel abroad, do a broad study. Because just even if you experience a different culture for a week, it opens your mind to what's out there in the world and allows you to learn different things easier and and things like that so yeah absolutely yeah and make sure when you go you don't just think that everybody now needs to become american because they're happy the way they're doing <laughs> that's right <laughs> so i know that you just have you have a new family two two kids and stuff um when you had to go to africa what were your what were you thinking how did you take that you mean with respect to 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 fen and ginger mike Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I have a very, I'm in a very unique, I have a unique situation, family situation. So I am what's called a donor dad with a friend of mine. Um, and we have two children together, a three-year-old boy named Fen or Fennel and our daughter Ginger just turned one in February. So my friend Karen is the full-time mom of, of our kids and they live in Seattle and I live my life we luckily um as as part of this you know karen and i are very good friends and we agreed before we ever started our this family together that karen would be the full-time mom and i could be involved and my family could be involved in the, our kids lives as much as we wanted and i think it's worked out great um i think karen and the kids are coming to visit my parents in missouri and maybe late if you're if you're back uh in the next few weeks um, and so it's, 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 it's great. And I go back to Seattle and visit them as much as I can. I actually just purchased a condo there and I'm, I'm going to be living there for the summer in between my tours. I'm leaving Morocco here in three weeks and then heading to Mexico next year for my next tour. So, um, in terms of your question, Leith, I, it's, it's a great situation that we have a very unique type of family, I think, especially for the United States, uh, that we have. And it's worked out great. I get to see the kids. We FaceTime all the time. Karen sends videos and messages all the time. And, and the kids are doing great. That's cool. There's more than one way to do it. That's right. Being in different cultures, do you think that has formed you in any different way? Being in the U.S. only, like, changed you at all? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, 
my experience is I, I've been doing this for so long now that it's probably, you know, lost its newness or veneer, but I living in other cultures and visiting other cultures really opens your mind to what's out there and, and makes you, I think, more accepting for to other people, whether it's, you know, you learn these lessons and you come back and you're more accepting of your neighbor in Missouri or your neighbor in California or your neighbor in Texas or whatever, and understand that everybody's lives are different and everybody you know, practices different religions or different ways of life and just more accepting. Um, you're also, I think I, it's changed me in the way of being able to learn things more quickly in terms of uh, differences between people and differences between cultures. It also changed me in terms of realizing, and this happens to me every single time I come back to the United States. I've worked, I've, as I listed those names, those are mostly middle-income countries, which means they're, the cultures, the societies, the economies are, are less developed in the United States. And every single time I come back to the United States, I go into one of our grocery stores and I'm, it just blows me away. I have to stand there for a few seconds every time I, for the first time I walk into a grocery store because that's not what the rest of the world is like. And it reminds me how fortunate we are in the United States um, to have all the things, all the options, all the choices, all the things that we have, because most countries in the world don't have that. But they're not pining for it. It's not as if they want to be us. Um, they're happy the way they are. But that's a few examples, I think, of how it's changed me. Do you ever feel nervous when you leave for a new country? Like, sure, say, of course. Going, like say, going to Mexico next year? like. Are you nervous for that? Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't say nervous and like nervous, scared, nervous in terms of maybe nervous, excited to start something new. This career is doing something new every two or three years. And so I actually have to learn Spanish before I go. So I'll be in Washington, D.C. for a year learning Spanish and then I'll, I'll head to Mexico. Um, so I think nervous in terms of excited to get started, nervous. Like I, you know, I'll have a team there. We'll be doing political economic issues. I'll actually be in Ciudad Juarez, which is on the border. And you may have, some of you have maybe read about it in the news lately. There's a lot of immigrants, Venezuelan immigrants that are on the border trying to get into the United States as refugees, asylum seekers. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. So yeah, I'm nervous, but not nervous, scared about it. I'm nervous, ready to get, get started. Yeah. I remember um, before you went to Africa, you had to learn French. I, would, I remember you trying to teach me some stuff. It, it didn't stick, but um, <laughs> anyway. So you said political economics. Is that what you said? Political That's economics. right. Would you break down what all that targets? Yeah, so I'll use, I'll use that my next tour as an example. So I'll be the political economic uh, counselor or political economic chief in, in Juarez. And I'll have a team of people that'll be kind of looking at those different things. So economic on the economic side, there are about 400 US companies that manufacture in Ciudad Juarez, which is right across the border from El Paso. Um, and so we'll be helping those companies, learning about them, seeing what the you know employment labor how they're employing Mexicans, how they're employing perhaps some of these immigrants that need jobs um, and working with them to make sure that the US companies are operating. On the political side, as I mentioned, there's huge immigration issues happening. So all of these refugees from countries where they don't have a very good life, where they're scared for their lives, are trying to enter the United States. And so we will work with them, at least reporting back to Washington and, and work with them to try to figure out uh, what's going on on the immigration side. 
So those are a couple examples. Um, I'm not there yet, so I'm sure I'll have some updates on what we'll be working on. Was there ever a moment where you thought that, like before you started this career, that you didn't know if you wanted to do it or not, or if you had second thoughts about your decision? <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've almost quit like three or four times. I think that's normal. <laughs> in, <laughs> I don't think that matters careers. what career you have. <laughs> yeah, I think that that happens all the time. So when I first joined, I like I said, I was in a scientific fellowship for the government working uh, in India and Mexico and Nicaragua and in different places. And I kind of liked the international work. So I was like, oh, I'll try to try the foreign service. And I promised myself I'd do three tours and then reassess. Um, I can remember going to Tel Aviv. My That was my first overseas tour. And when I got there, I did a year of economic work and then a year of what we call consular work that's taking care of American citizens and also giving visas to people or interviewing people for visas to come to the United States. And I can remember that was the first time I just, I was like, I, it, this is not for me. What am I doing? I was interviewing 150 people today in Hebrew, speaking Hebrew to them, um, I, you know, all these things. And I, yeah, I was like, I need to find another job. I was actually interviewing. I was interviewing for other jobs on my breaks. <laughs> because I was ready to go. And it's happened a couple more times. And I think that's normal in a career. Um, I've always come back to this because it's a good gig. We get to learn languages. We get to live in other cultures. We get to move around and do cool stuff. But yeah, totally normal to second guess or think you don't want it anymore. I think it's healthy too. Like, I think it's important to ask yourself, is this what I really want? And if you come back to yes, then you keep moving forward. But it's important to check in with yourself, whether it's I mean, you still got to go to school. You can't check in with yourself on school. Like that's a requirement. But when it comes to your career, even what events you're doing, you know, saying like, okay, am I really headed down the right direction? Is this really what I love? Do I really like this? Or is it time for me to do something else? Or maybe you'll say, yeah, I, I realized that I love it more than what I thought. I want to get deeper into it. Um, so I think that's great that you take the time to do that. And it is reality. Like everybody will go through. I was just telling the girls last night on the team meeting that we forgot about, um, <laughs> that, you know, even with rodeo kids and stuff like there's days that it's like, gosh, like, this is a lot of work. Do I still want to do this? But when you take a step back and look at it and it's like, wow, but look at the opportunity but sometimes you have to put yourself in that frame of mind to really even see how far you've come um where you're at and how far you can still go that's right and it's okay to adjust i think sometimes the way i was raised in, in my generation i think we're sometimes taught to really stick with something and don't give up and all these things but when it comes to a career especially you know if you get your education you go to college you have all these things the opportunity, there's a lot of opportunities out there and it's okay to adjust, you know, a lot. And most people do adjust as their careers move forward. Would you tell us about like what kind of education you need for that job from high school to college? Just... Yeah, absolutely. So the for the foreign service to join, so I work for the U.S. Department of State, the State Department. Um, and we have what's called civil service and we have foreign service and the civil service are the part of our workforce that stay in Washington, or they actually work. We have offices across the United States and different like um, American citizen services offices and things, but mostly in Washington. And the foreign service, we spend most of our careers overseas. And to get into the foreign service, you have to take multiple tests. It, take, it takes about a year 
um, to take all the tests. And then at the end, there's a final oral exam that you find out whether you got in or not. The acceptance rate into the Foreign Service is only about 10% of the people that apply and go through that process get in. But to actually start, you actually only, you don't even have to have a college degree. You can have a high school degree. Um, but you have to have quite a bit of experience if you don't have a college degree to get in. And, and there's no required specific degree. So I'm an economic officer. We have different areas of work, economics, politics, management, which take care of us at the embassy, consular, which does takes care of Americans, and public diplomacy. And for any of them, you don't have to have a specific degree to, to get in. That's pretty interesting. What led you to this? Like, what made you want to even go down this path in the first place? Yeah, so I finished, I fin when I finished my PhD, I, I decided that I didn't, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to stay in academics to become a professor and continue to do research, like biochemical research. And one of the options available to me at the time when I finished was um, coming to Washington for a science and technology policy fellowship. So they bring PhD level scientists to serve throughout the US government, the executive branch and in Congress. And I did that for two years at the Department of Agriculture in our foreign agricultural service. And I was doing programs for USDA in uh, around the world, like teaching countries how to have animal health, good animal health practices, plant health practices, food safety standards, that type of thing, so they can trade with us. Um, mm. And I, and during that time, I just kind of fell in love with the international work, um, working in other cultures. And at the end of my fellowship, again going back to the kind of the original question, I just kind of fell into it. At the end of the fellowship. Um, I still was, I was, I, I knew that I didn't want to go back to academics and there was an offer for me to join the foreign service in an expedited route. So I got to skip a couple of those tests and gotcha. so, so I tried it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, kind of like you said in the beginning, there's no one straight path to a career. That's right. That's right. It bounces okay. around for sure. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to or anybody who wants to get into something like that? foreign service what would you tell them um i think what i would tell people in high school is travel abroad um take it take a take the opportunity to either do a study abroad for a couple of weeks while you're in high school or plan on doing it early in college and see how you feel about other cultures and and think about you know living there and working there and doing those types of things but beyond that experience, I would I would also recommend, you know, are you interested in politics? Are you interested in customer service, like taking care of Americans, that type of thing? And if you are, take those classes, learn about those things. You know, what are the United States government's major foreign policy um, priorities around the world? You know, is it defense? Is it food security? Making sure that agriculture and trade you know, everybody has food. Well, you know, learn about the things that you're interested in and see if those match. Um, and then just go for it. There's tons of internships, um, international internships where you can study abroad. There's internet, there's internships at the State Department. No matter where you're from in the United States, you can apply for these internships and come to Washington for a summer or for 10 weeks and work at the State Department in Washington. We actually have some internships for um, college students where you can actually come overseas for 10 weeks and we provide how you know the embassies provide housing and you work in a particular section and they kind of experience experience this life so bottom line take advantage of 
all those international things. If this is something that you think that might, you might be interested in for a career, take advantage, learn as much as you can, travel. Is it pretty hard to meet people overseas or is it pretty easy? That's a really good question. So for us, in the, for US Foreign Service officers, when we arrive in a new country, we have a built-in community because we, we are, we're, you know, in most places when, we, when somebody not from that country travels there, they're called expatriates. And so what we call there's an expatriate community. And we said so when we travel somewhere, when I go to a new post, to a new, a new embassy, I have a built-in community. And so we, it's easy to get to know our colleagues. We have, you know, we have what's called a community liaison officer at our embassies that, you know, plans parties and outings and, and allows the community to get to know one another. So we've also, we work together, but also we spend personal time together. So in that respect, it's easy. Getting to know people outside of your embassy community, which I enjoy, um, is sometimes harder, of course because we're from different cultures, depending on what languages you speak. Like here, you know, I speak French and most Moroccans, most educated Moroccans speak French, but the main language here is Arabic. Actually a very specific form of Arabic called Darija, and I don't speak it. And so, you know, that's that's an example of how sometimes it's hard to make friends when the languages don't match up. And some cultures, like in Saudi Arabia, uh, the Saudi people were very kind and generous people, but they 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 like to kind of stay within their own family unit. So it's very hard to get to know a lot of Saudis. So every culture is a little bit different um, in that respect in terms of making friends. As we're in like a very technology type of way of communicating, like especially for kids late late stage, like we didn't have smartphones when I we didn't even have cell phones when I grew up. And now we have Snapchat and Facebook and TikTok and we can text and we can FaceTime. We can do all these things through a screen. Um, what yeah. advice or tactics do you recommend for these kids who are like, well, I'd like to be more than just a screen communicator? Um how do you use that? Because I'm sure there's also things that you learn in other cultures that I think you pick up on that you don't learn in America because we're all have so many similarities. Yeah. So what the, just to so I understand your question, you're asking how how do we how do we make technology work in terms of no, how do we go back to less technology, like when they're wanting to make those person-to-person in-face connections? Oh yeah. Well, I guess bottom line is, I mean, it depends on the person, but I I prefer the in person. Actually, our our this career field of of diplomacy kind of requires a lot of in person because we have to build contacts, we have to build trust, right, in other people, and a lot of times it's very difficult to build trust um, virtually, whether it's WhatsApping someone, Snapchatting someone, um, sending messages on Instagram, doing Zooms. Um, teams webex we have all the tools now especially because of covid mm-hmm. to do all these things but you can't really build relationships really solid trust trusting relationships with people um, and that's and part of this career is doing that you have to build trusting relationships i need to be able to call the ministry of health if there's a medical emergency of covid and you know the united states is going to provide some aid or we need your help i, I need them to trust me to answer the phone and to build those relationships you really need to have in person, you know, you need to talk to each other, have lunch with each other, have meetings and start to build that trust. And so I guess bottom line, just make an effort to do more in-person 
um, relationship building. Um, and that's, that goes with your personal life too, I think. It's really hard with technology to build trusting personal relationships without some type of in-person uh, communication. Very good, I agree with that. You were talking about the technology. So how does that work? How does your communication work between governments and how does like Africa and their government take you guys? Yeah, so the first part of your question, communication, we communicate um, with the Moroccan government and the Moroccan private sector the same way you communicate in the US. We, lots of WhatsApp. Um, most of the rest of the world uses WhatsApp because it's it's encrypted and you can use your number from no matter what country you're from, you can use it globally. So we WhatsApp a lot. We do you know video calls. We do a lot of in-person um, meetings and lunches and just things to build networks and build communication. Um, and so, yeah, we use all the tools. When I first arrived here, it was in the beginning of COVID. So it was August of 2020. And so I arrived here. They weren't allowing any flights in and out. We chartered, the U.S. government chartered a flight to get all of us new people into Morocco so we could start working. But when we arrived, we had to stay in our house or in our apartments for two weeks without leaving. I literally couldn't open the, the door. People had to deliver oh groceries. Yeah. And then for the first probably six months, I couldn't go and meet any of my Moroccan contacts. I couldn't get to know people. I had introductory meetings by video, but as I said, you know, you don't really get to know somebody like that. Um, so yeah, it was certainly it's evolved for the first year and a half. COVID made things very interesting for this, for this job. Things are pretty much normal now. So yeah, so your first part of the question, like I, I we use just kind of the normal virtual and in-person communication uh, with people. Um, what was the second part of your question? How does the government there in Africa, do they tolerate, like, do they mind you being there? Do they fine with it? Are you on good terms and everything? Yeah, of course. The United States government has a pretty good relationship with Morocco across multiple, you know, sectors, whether it's yeah, we have a good relationship with Morocco, so they treat us as diplomats pretty well. Um, but that's a good question, because sometimes that's not the case in some parts of the world. Uh, you know, we have embassies in places where the, the, the citizens as well as the government have a very challenging relationship with the United States. And so it can be challenging for uh, you know, my colleagues and people in those countries where they They'll assign people to follow you around. They're kind of always watching you. They can, you know, do different things um, to make it uncomfortable because there's an uncomfortable relationship between our countries. Um, but you know, we deal with that and we try to to fix things. Was there anything like that in Saudi Arabia? I feel like I remember talking to you and you had to wear these cloths or something like that. Were you forced to wear those or were those just for sandstorm stuff? No, for Saudi Arabia, there wasn't any required clothing. Um, they did, so like if you, so I lived in the capital of Riyadh, and if we left the capital, we, it, like say I was going to go driving to some sand dune outside of Riyadh, we as, the, as diplomats had to notify their Ministry of Interior, and then they would send someone with us. Um, so we weren't really allowed to travel freely in, in Saudi Arabia. That was for two reasons. One, to protect us because you know they're 
the host country is responsible for us as diplomats. So if something were to happen to us, it would be on them. So they send someone to protect you, but also to keep an eye on you, right? To <laughs> see what see what you're out there doing. So there was no required clothing there. I've actually no, there's never been anywhere that we've had required clothing. Baghdad, when I was in Baghdad, it was still a war zone. So we had to, I had to wear Kevlar vests and helmets between buildings, you know, my apartment where I stayed to what we call the chancery where our offices are. And there was, so we had to wear, you know, some heavy stuff there, but but that's about it. That would be a little. Was there ever any close calls with that play, with that area? Not really. I mean, you get used to it after a while. There was, you know, we, we'd have um, what we call incoming. So in Baghdad, we have technology around the compound that can detect incoming rockets and things of that nature. And so sirens would go off at all hours of the day and night. And, it, you know, it screams at you to incoming, incoming, duck and cover, duck and cover. And that happened all the time, but you kind of got used to it. And there was never really any, while I was there, there was never anything that, that came close to to causing any damage or hurting, hurting anyone. Sounds like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes this, yeah, sometimes it is like a movie. <laughs> yeah. So working for like the government side of things, have you ever met like any high officials? The U.S. government, yeah. I um, where do I start? I guess I started with the U.S. government under President Bush, George W. Bush, and I never met him. I think I saw him once from a distance. He was giving a speech at USDA. Um, since then, I I've written speeches for and worked directly for Secretary Clinton. Um, I've met President Obama and, and Michelle Obama several times. Um, when they travel overseas, we have to take care of these officials. So you get pretty up close and personal. Um, Secretary Kerry, John Kerry, Senator McCain, I was his, what we call control officer. He visited Israel twice and Saudi Arabia twice. And I was his control officer three of those four times. So he's a very interesting person. Um, Secretary Blinken was here recently and I was his control officer. So I got to know him a little bit. Um, Lots of senators and members of Congress. Uh, you get to know them pretty, uh, pretty well when they travel. So, other than McCain, I think um, Lindsey Graham, and then some other people who have retired <laughs> that that aren't around anymore. But, but it's kind of cool. You get to know these people that you all that we all see on the news and see them in real life and see what they're see what they're really like. As you get to meet those people and you know who hold these high offices and make big decisions for our country. Is there something that that they all have in common that puts them there? Yeah, I think everyone that I've met, members of Congress or very senior officials, there's an intense dedication to public service. They're there to represent the United States and our people and do and advance our, you know, our entire country's interests. And you feel that from all of them. Um, that's they're dedicated to the United States and to public service and to our people. And I think that's common across parties, across no matter what, you know, that's, that's the common thread. That's good. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When you come back home, is it become like overwhelmed with what all we have here? Is there ever like a shortage of anything where you are? Yeah. So 
when I come back to the United States, I, I am no longer overwhelmed by it. I used to be when I when I first started out doing this, especially when I was at USDA and I just go to Central American countries or to uh, Southeast Asia. I would be there for a week or two and I would come home and it would just hit me, you know, like every, whether it's our transportation system or the grocery stores or whatever, I, it, it would overwhelm me a little bit coming back. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. I'm more like thankful now when I come home. It's more like, oh, it's so nice to be to be back in the United States. Um, and in terms of shortages, absolutely. I mean, our, you know, different parts of the world have different supply chains, have different ways of getting products. Most, a lot of the food products here in Morocco, not not on the agricultural side, but on the processed food or cheese or things of that nature are imports. They import from Europe and some from the United States. And you know sometimes those things break down. So you can go to the grocery store one week and pick up your favorite cheese or favorite dairy product or whatever. And the next week it won't be there and it might not be there for a month or two. So it, it's different in that regard, I think, than usually what happens in the US. So does food tell a lot about a culture when you're over there and indifferent? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great question. I think food is one of the biggest um, descriptors of a culture. And I found that most cultures, most countries that I've lived in, the people are very proud of their food and they use it as kind of not only to build relationships with people, but to describe the, their culture, to describe themselves. You know, the Israelis, they have their certain type of food that they eat. And then, you know, they, there's, in this part of the world, um, they have what they're called uh, hummus wars, where, you know, which country makes the best hummus and <laughs> where, did, where did it originate or whatever. And so that's part of the food culture too, is like, you know, countries saying we have better this, we have better that. Morocco in particular, they have specific food here that really isn't anywhere else. Um, like couscous, which is something I think we have in the United States. It's like boxed usually. But here, couscous is a delicacy. They serve it on every single Friday and only on Fridays. But it's a special couscous that they grow here and that they, you know, um, marinate it and, and stew it overnight. And they add meat and vegetables. And so that's a big thing. They have pastilla, tagines. I won't describe what those are, but very specific foods. So yeah, every culture has its own food. And usually they're very proud of it. And they use it as a way to, to show you their culture and to show you, you know, to build relationships. I think too, like one thing that I always forget about until I travel abroad is what we have is states, like the size of our states is often the size of a country in other parts of the world. And so like, I mean, just Iowa to Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin's the cheese state and they kind of have that more in countries because their countries are the size of many of our states. Yeah, no, absolutely. Israel as a country, you can drive across the entire country in about four hours, four and a half hours from top to bottom. Um, so because you could have some perspective, you're right. A lot of countries are the size of our, our states or some of our states. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's kind of a shame that in America that we have gotten away from food being what it is in other countries. You know, like I said, we were just in Amsterdam and stuff and, um, on TikTok, I follow this guy and he talks about the differences between Italy and America and like food and how they use it and how it is used to build relationships. And it is something that they take time and are really proud of. And here it's like grab, go stuff. Don't care what we're putting in our bodies as long as it's full. 
And um, yeah. I think we're in America. I personally feel that we are missing the boat on a very cool opportunity that is at our fingertips. Although to your point, I, I uh, in terms of the United States being so big, because we are one of the largest land size countries in the world. And that allows us to have, as we all know, right? The US is very different. The South is different than the Midwest is different than the East Coast or West Coast. And I think that we do have different food cultures in those different areas of the US, which is great for us. But we don't have one collective, right? Like barbecues big in the South, um, hoagies in Pennsylvania or whatever. Like we have different areas in the US that have different types of food, but we don't mm -hmm. have you know, one collective. What would we say? You know, hot dogs and hamburgers, maybe? Um, yeah. McDonald's. We do have food cultures, you know, spread out in different places. Yeah. yeah, McDonald's. McDonald's in some parts of the world is a delicacy. People line up down the block to get into McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, and they make them like really fancy, and it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a McDonald's there? Of course, we have lots of McDonald's. McDonald's <laughs> is a is a franchise, so. And they're and they're international, so they McDonald's. What McDonald's corporate in what in the United States will do is they'll sell a McDonald's franchise to usually a family, not just one person, but a family in a country, and that one family will then own all the McDonald's in that country, but they pay the franchising to the U.S. McDonald's. And McDonald's is very strict. I know a lot about this because I was when I lived in Israel, I was trying to get McDonald's to open in the Palestinian Authority. And so I talked to a lot of executives at McDonald's. It was very interesting. But they require all McDonald's around the world to use the same type of potato, species of potato for their french fries. Um, same standards of, of cleanliness and everything. It's kind of cool. That's interesting. That is cool. Yeah. And here our people are forgetting our sauces and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Always, yeah. Yeah. So I know the weather, like it's crazy in all parts of the world, but um, what is out of all the places you've lived, the worst weather you've had or had to deal with? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. It is um, in the summertime there and the summertime starts around May, May to probably November. And it can get to 120 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, in the middle of the day and I would usually and there's and it's very very dry because it's desert so you don't it's very it can be very dangerous so you don't really realize that you're sweating because the sweat evaporates immediately so you it's not like you're sweating you know that you're sweating so you can be dehydrated very quickly and in the winter to the winter time there the temperature goes down but then there's sandstorms and the sandstorms are complete blackouts you can't see five feet in front of you and they'll cut, you know, the sand comes in from under the doors and the windows and it gets into your house. So definitely the craziest weather was in Saudi Arabia. Sounds like a miserable place to live. I'm yeah. sure it has its perks, but I think I'll <laughs> yeah. clear that one. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for someone who didn't, doesn't, didn't grow up there, I mean, the Saudis, they're all acclimated to it, right? If you grow they up don't in know any places, different. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember when we went to Arizona, like I'm from Iowa and we are not Arizona. We went to New Mexico for the high school finals when I made it in high school. And 
It was like 105 degrees. And my dad could not figure out why our air conditioner wasn't dripping water. So he called the camper guy and the camper guy's up there and he's like, it's working. And like, there's nothing wrong with it. And I said, why isn't it dripping? Like it can't be working right. Cause there's no water coming out of it. And he's like, what are you talking about, dude? And well, it's cause it's a dry climate. So it evaporates. <laughs> yeah, so that was, a, <laughs> yeah. So as Midwesterners, you know, we had no clue that water didn't always drip out of air conditioners. That's right. Yeah. It's hot enough. Was there ever a time when you thought about staying with Nana and Granddad or staying home and working on the farm and stuff? Or were you always get out and go? You mean when I was in high school, like way back when or since then? No, like way back when, like when you were just starting your career. Yeah, no, not really. I, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, like I came back, I came back home and worked several times. I think the when I left high school, I went to college. We lived in Nebraska at the time. I left, went to the University of Nebraska Lincoln. And then I think I came back for the first summer home to work and then didn't come back again for a few years. And then after undergrad, like I said, I applied for medical school, got in, but decided I needed to wait a while. So I went back. They lived in Missouri at the time. So I worked that summer. I've never considered, actually that summer when I worked there, like your dad was in high school at the time, <laughs> but I um, I considered actually going to vet school at that point and working on the, and when working on the farm, but that didn't pan out and I did something different. <laughs> yeah. I assume that you never wanted to uh, further your bulldogging career after a summer. <laughs> You've heard that story too many times, I think, Life. Yep, I'll never forget it. <laughs> and your dad was scared of my revenge <laughs> after that happened. Oh my goodness. So we got to tell the story now. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> we, were, <laughs> I, we had probably just finished like a 12-hour day of work and we had some roping calves in an arena and my brother was on the back of a horse and he roped one. He's like, bulldog it. And I was like, okay. So I walk over to bulldog it. And I don't know, I still to this day, I don't know what happened, but I got it to the ground and somehow it got me, it turned me over and rolled over my face and rolled over my head and broke my nose on the ground. Oh. <laughs> It didn't hurt too bad, but it was bleeding a lot. And as soon as I stood up, Luke jumped off his course and took off running. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's the story. Oh, oh gosh, that's funny. So were you ever into rodeo? I was not. No, Luke got into rodeo. So we lived in, my, my parents owned a feedlot in, in Northeast Nebraska. And we ran... I don't know, around 10,000, 12,000 head. And when I went to college, the first year I went to college, my dad hired uh, a new a new kind of um, bunk chief or whatever to, to work at the feedlot. And he happened to be an NFR, former NFR bareback champion. And so Luke got to know him and Luke, that's how Luke kind of got into rodeo. It wasn't really something that, we had horses and stuff that we used to work around the feedlot. But, so that's kind of where Luke got started in rodeo. Gotcha. I didn't After realize I left that. home. Yeah. Yeah. I've got two brothers and two sisters, and I'm the only one that has anything to do with it. So I'm familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when when you were at home and like did you like what were you thinking about doing like did you always think that you would end up in the foreign service or did you no so i i started out wanting to be a medical doctor and honestly i think i wanted to be a medical doctor because when i was growing up being a doctor or a lawyer was like the thing right because my family both sides your great-grandparents Lath, both our both my grandfathers were farmers crop farmers and they had cattle and so to get out of that or to be a doctor or a lawyer was like you know impressive if you had that that was what you know you you, you strove for and so i think that's part of it why I, that's what i wanted to be and I did that, right? I, I got an undergrad to be able to get into medical school. But then from there, you know, you bounce around, you find what you like. Have yeah. there been challenges in, in doing things different than the rest of your family? Uh, most of the challenges, I think, are just mostly, you know, my family. I don't think my family understands what this life is or what I do exactly which I completely understand that because I don't know how to explain it all the time. I mean, like you don't have common, if you don't have common experiences, you know, you do, you know, you can, you can lose a little bit of that connection, but not really. I mean, yeah, just I know some kids feel quite a bit of like the families kind of like you said before, you know, you do one thing and you stick to it and this is what our family does. And this is how we've always done it. And, um, you know, just kind of that ideal that you should follow in their footsteps and not necessarily true for every family, but I do know that some families feel that, especially some of these kids who are coming up in, in rodeo families or in football families or in whatever it is specifically that their family direction is um if you were to give them advice to do something that is different and crazy what would it be i guess it would be just trust yourself don't um it's good to respect your family and other and, and listen to other people's advice but trust yourself if you have does you know if if something doing something whether it's a hobby or a career or a subject in school or whatever just trust yourself and do it um don't worry about what other people think or how you think that you're going to be judged i guarantee you in life people are thinking about you 99 percent less than you think they are mm -hmm. and so go for it just don't don't hesitate mm -hmm. i like that I had a question too, um, you know, Lace on the Rodeo Kids leadership team, and clearly you do some pretty strong leading. What advice do you have for like Lake being on a team and being in a role where he gets to influence other kids around the country through this platform? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, me, for me, leadership, especially leadership of people, I was fortunate enough to, to go through a leadership program last summer with some really great colleagues. And I think I realized that leadership to me, especially people leadership is a two-way street. Um, everybody needs a leader. 
if you're in a group, if there's not a leader and things can kind of fall apart. And um, so you always need a leader and that leader doesn't need to always be the same person, but leading people I think is about trust and building trust and getting to know people and being flexible and providing um, help where it's needed and, and letting people have the autonomy to do their own thing when that's needed. So it's really about getting to know people, building trust, and then, you know, keeping that going, seeing where things go. Mm -hmm. I like too how you said, um, I guess kind of what I took from that too is as a leader with the two-way street, you need a leader and a follower. And being a leader means sometimes being the follower and being willing to let other people lead when you're on a team, but also being willing to step up and be that leader when it's time to be a leader. Absolutely. And being a follower doesn't mean that you're less than or inferior to a leader. It just means that you're filling a role at that point in time in your life or on, on the team or whatever's going on that's very, very important. And it's just different. And um, yeah, one of the examples of that. So when I first joined the State Department, we had we have basic training and one of the most senior people in the department, he had been an ambassador like four or five times and he was a very, very senior person at that time came to talk to us. And he gave this example of leadership and how the, the, the follower leader kind of thing. And he told us, he goes, I am, I am, he was at the time the most senior career person that was literally working in the building of the State Department. And he said the week before his staff was preparing to go to some big meeting and he had one of his staffers was, it was like 8 p.m. He was still in the office. One of his staffers was on the sitting on the floor stapling like creating these binders for someone and he sat down with her and started stapling and she was flustered she's like sir what are you doing and he's like you know all of us need to collate and staple sometimes and the lesson that he told us was like don't ever get a big head don't ever think that you're too important if you're a leader that's actually one of the best things that you can do as a leader is work with your team, get down there into the nitty gritty. Don't ever think that you're better or different just because you have a role, a different role than other people. But yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true. If you're um, a leader on a team like this, or if you're at the top of a leaderboard, you still get to do the work and be kind and be compassionate and love everybody around you regardless. That's right. Absolutely. Cool. And like, also you, I feel like a person also has to know that not everybody wants to hear, nobody wants to hear your success. You know, everybody's, your competitors, they may act like, you know, that they are there, but they, they want to win too. So like, when you go make a good run, you don't need to talk about it. You know, you don't need to go, oh, did you see that time and stuff like that? Cause yeah, sure. They'll congratulate you, but they'll be like, in their head they'll be like can he just stop talking like they don't they just they're, they're waiting for your downfall so just figured keep your keep your head to the grindstone but um also have you ever um had to fill a role that was outside of your comfort zone yes several times and i will tell you that uh i i've gotten to the point in my career where i crave that because um, to me, it's a learning experience. It feels when you're 
put into something where it's out of your comfort zone, it feels, it can feel very scary. It can feel very out of control, but you can always get past it. You always, and you always learn so much from those experiences. Um, Baghdad was one of those. I was dropped in when I worked for the, actually before I joined the foreign service, I was, I went to Baghdad to do something for the department of agriculture and I was dropped in. I won't go through all the details, but I was not prepared for being dropped into a war zone and then figuring out how to, I, I did, you know, no one really told me how to do going from the U S air force military base to our embassy and, you know, all the, the Blackhawk helicopters and the armored vehicles and the, all these things, and then get there and then do all these things and be, you know, have security escorts and then try to work with the Iraqis to do, to train them on, you know, trade practices and, you know, having to leave because there was a terror threat. You get dropped into something like that and it can be scary and out of control, like I said, but afterwards you just, you, you've learned so much. It's called developmental learning. Develop, you don't really learn developmentally unless you're thrown into those things where you just feel out of your comfort zone. So to me, it's a good thing and I crave it now. I like, I like that, that type of learning is being kind of thrown into the deep end and seeing how it goes. Were there ever people around you that crumbled in that situation? Of course, of course. And I think there was there was moments that I crumbled. I mean, I got back up, but you I think that's normal and it's natural. And you know, if you're if you're not accustomed to, to that type of being thrown into things, it's okay to, you know, first of all, failure. Failure is how you learn. There's nothing wrong with failing. Um but yeah, it's okay to crumble, but then as long as you kind of learn from it and try to try to learn from it and do better next time. Yeah, I love that. We have a phrase that we like to use, win or learn, I never lose. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. What advice would you give to a person who feels like they don't have control and just clustered with their life and doesn't know what to do? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I think, I guess what I would tell tell someone in that situation is that a couple things. One, you can always change your circumstance. It may be hard. It may be difficult. It may be about making choices that you really don't want to make or, or that you think are too hard. But no matter the circumstances, you can always make changes. And those changes can be small and result in a bigger change in your life or those changes can be huge, like pulling up stakes and moving across the country. Um, but it's always it's always possible. It just, sometimes it takes baby steps to get there or one big step and some tough decisions, but you can always, always change, um, make changes. Mm -hmm. Life is a series of choices. That's right. So um, when did you decide that you wanted to go to Nebraska? Like, what was your reason for going to college there? Honestly, probably because a lot of my friends were going there. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, applied, I applied for quite a few universities and got into, I think, for undergrad. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of my friends went there. I you know, got a scholarship. It was somewhat close to home. 
they had, you know, they had a good program there. A little bit basic, but that's, those are my reasons. I, got I have two that. last questions if laced out of them. Um, one, what is advice that you would just, just general advice um, in the role that you're in now with the life that you've experienced? Uh, what would you, what comes to mind in this moment of advice that you would give to parents? To parents on anything or something? Just what comes to mind? Parents, I would say, um, yeah, that's tough. There's a whole world of things out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say love your kids and give them the freedom to, to explore what they, especially high school, early college, let them figure who they are, out who they are and let them explore career, life, everything. I, I think that's you know, and I'm not saying that because I think parents aren't doing that. I think that's just a very important aspect is giving your yeah. kids the freedom to figure out who they are and to to explore and without judgment. I like it. Okay. And then my second question is, what advice in this moment do you have for Leif and other kids? Stop sending me Marco Polos? No, that's not <laughs> Just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I'd say, I mean, Leith, you're in an amazing part of your life right now. And I think every, everything, I mean, rodeo and, and what you've got going on outside of school aside, um, just life generally is going to just get better from here in terms of relationships, learning what it is that you want to do in life. Um, high school is one thing, college is a whole nother thing. And it just, it does get it just keeps getting better in terms of coming into yourself and learning yourself. And, and my advice to you is just take advantage of that. Don't hold back. Don't worry about what other people have to, to, to say or what they think. Just embrace it and have fun. Will do. Amen. That was a good one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was cool to learn about. This isn't usually the kind of guest that we have on the Rodeo Kids podcast, so it's <laughs> awesome. You know, we like having a variety, and it's important to know this kind of stuff. You know, even if you aren't in a place that you get to travel a lot, or maybe you don't have the means to do that, just hearing conversations like this helps people learn. So um, we appreciate you being willing to share with us and to take the time all the way in Africa. What time is it there right now? Yeah, it's uh, seven thirty p.m. 6.30 p.m. Okay, well, that's not that bad then. At least it's not like three o'clock in the morning or something. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. 2.30. <laughs> What's up? I said you did text me at 2.30 this morning. You oh, yeah, I was having off. my coffee. Morning. That's my morning. <laughs> <laughs> my work morning. <laughs> yes. No, thank well, you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation, um, Leith. Um, yeah, um, by the way, you're my only family member I can have on this thing, so I feel special. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you can have your dad on here. Mm, or Linton. <laughs> I already I already interviewed his grandpa, so yeah. He doesn't get to use that one. But yes, thank you so much. And thank you for what you do. I absolutely have no desire to ever work for the government. So I appreciate those who do. No. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It takes it takes it all kinds everywhere. It was good talking to you.
I'll Good see you sometime. <laughs> I'll be back this summer, so I'm sure I'll see you then. All right. See you later. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. always thank you for tuning in to the rodeo kids podcast if this is the only place that you've ever connected with rodeo kids we encourage you to check us out on our social media we have facebook instagram and tiktok and of course rodeokids.com where you can learn about all of the awesome things that we have to offer from our ambassador team to scholarships and opportunities to connect with college rodeo coaches and there's always more coming so head on over to rodeokids.com give us a like follow and don't forget to share with your friends have a great day, safe travels, good luck, and God bless chasing those gold buckle dreams.